right, friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue our journey here through Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is, again, another challenging chapter. It seems like we've been saying that a lot as we go through uh, this letter. Um, we we have, don't have a lot of time, and this is a, it is a difficult chapter. Uh, one, because it deals with gender roles, which are, uh, I've heard, disputed here and there uh, in our society today. Uh, two, because not even translations agree on what it says in the English. Uh, we have the, the NIV that disagrees with the ESV, and the ESV that disagrees with the King James, and the King James that agrees with the New King James. Imagine that. And then you, you know, so you have, there's a lot of debate around it. There's a lot of curiosity around it. There's historical dis- uh, uh, disputes over what was going on there and what was the norm, what was not the norm, and all these different things. And then because it's such a hot topic, we, uh, just like every person from every time and place in history, have, you know, just saying gender roles, that brings up a different idea for many, Right? Because depending how you were raised, or depending on how you were taught, or depending on your knowledge of the scripture, depending on your history, that will all bring up different ideas about what we're saying. And so in, in gender roles, you have kind of extremes, right? You have the, uh, the, the idea that men are superior and that you should just be uh, subjugated to men and whatever, right? And that's obviously not right, and that's one extreme. And then you kind of have the, 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 the other extreme, which is kind of where some of feminism, not all feminists, but some of fe- feminism has gone today, which is kind of the idea that if you suppress men and suppress anything that is male, that that will bring liberty and satisfaction and peace to females. And that's not working very well either. Uh, and so where, what does the Bible teach about it? What is going on here? How can we get something out of it for ourselves? Um, you know, we're going to take a 2,000, well, I guess it's a little younger than that, probably 1,900-year passage, and we'll get it all figured out this morning. What do you guys say? <laughs> probably not. Now, as we talk about a lot on Sundays, 1 Corinthians 11, it's so important that we go back to our context, right? Everything we read in the Scripture, remember, was written at a time and in a place and to a certain people. It doesn't mean it's not for us. It doesn't mean we can't gain something out of it. But what it means is it wasn't written to us, right? It was written to the Corinthians, to a, to a city and a time at about uh, what, 56 AD to people that were living a life there. And so there's, there's stuff in here that is, has to do with that time and that place. There's stuff in here that are eternal truths that God says, this is just how things work, and we'll explore that too. And so we want to go through and differentiate them. Number one, what's our main idea or what's our main uh, context to go by paul is writing a letter back to corinth which is an incredibly dysfunctional church right and and the the second half of chapter 11 is paul having to tell people stop getting drunk at your potlucks which you feel like would be kind of self-explanatory at a church wouldn't you but it wasn't stop getting drunk and then partaking of the lord's supper stop doing that it's a bad idea so in this section he's really continuing the same idea of curbing civil, or not civil, I kept I said that last service too, of curbing our religious liberties. Remember, 8, 9, and 10 are all about how we live our lives, not for the sake of ourselves, right? He says we must, we must not live to please ourselves, 
But in our liberty that we have as Christians, we still live with the temperance of love. Remember that? And so he's saying that their topic was meat sacrifice to idols. And he says to the Christians there that they realize that they're set free from the law, as we also know, as he writes in his second letter to the Corinthians that we have. It's probably more like the third or fourth letter overall. But the second letter that we have, where Paul writes and he says, hey, when you eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you, uh, a brother or a sister in Christ sees you, and they have a hard time with that, you can destroy their faith. So he says, don't do that. Don't do that to people, right? Then he's going to say, and, and we know that's valid, because in 2 Corinthians, he's going to write back, and he's going to say, the old covenant is its, he calls it two things. Uh, our, our English says old. It literally means obsolete, all right, so you know if you, if, you, if you have an old car and you try to get a part for it or something like that, they say, oh, that's obsolete, which means it's not useful anymore, so we don't even make stuff to fix that. So Paul calls the law obsolete in as much as it has to do with Christians and how we live our lives. It is a great, uh, the law exposes God's heart, right? The law shows us those things. It has great lessons for us to learn, but it's not a place of righteousness for us. In other words, we don't do it in order to claim some sort of righteousness. That was abolished to us because our righteousness is in Christ because of his sacrifice as Christians. So in that idea, Paul's writing back to this dysfunctional church and he's answering a woman named Chloe's, either her letter or her message, whatever it was that she sent to him to address a problem that's specifically happening in Corinth. So that's context number one. That's important, right? So that we can know when we read this, we're reading Paul's answer to a direct problem that was there in Corinth. The second part of this that I want to talk about, as far as our context and so forth, is what is the context and kind of this overlying context of women in the Bible? Because again, interpretations can get skewed by society. It's been wisely said that as society goes, so goes the church. And, and, and I'm not picking on the church, I'm not trying to make any kind of slights. But, you know, as society, it just, just take entertainment, for example. As society goes, if something's longer than like two minutes, we won't watch it, right? That's what Facebook demographics tell us. If it's longer than two minutes and it doesn't instantly grab us, we will not watch it. So when you watch all the, the pastor blurbs or, you know, the mommy blog blurbs or, you know, all these different things that have good information in them, you can't have a 10-minute blurb anymore. Because no one's going to watch it. Every blurb is two minutes. So as the society is gone, so is the church is gone. So we have to be careful that we don't interpret things into the passage that aren't there. And we don't come up with things that we just feel right about. We have to stick with the biblical idea. So the first thing I want to lay out after the fact that this is written to Corinth to address a certain problem is how are women addressed in the Bible? I'm a big proponent for women's ministries. I have two daughters. I'm married to one. You know, I'm, there's no, the Bible never brings down women or makes them less or causes or suggests a systemic subjugation of women to men. It never does that. And even though societies have, have propagated that, and even though societies have used the Bible to try to propagate that, we actually want to look at what does the Bible actually say. And the first thing I want to do is just, I just wrote down some examples of uh, what you might say is assertive women or powerful women, how, however you, type A women, however you would like to label it. Number one, Chloe, right? 
she took the time. She has her own household, which probably means she's a woman of means. And she, she's not married, or it wouldn't be the household of Chloe. We know that from history. She takes the time to write Paul and say, hey, there's some big problems in my church. Will you help? And, and the response that Paul gives isn't, shut up and go back to the kitchen, woman. Right? Like some people would try to say the Bible is like. The response is what we're reading. This radical, God-led, inspired response of changes that can occur in a church. There's, I'm, I'm, there's tons of examples. You have Lydia. Right? Lydia is somebody that goes out and meets Paul and constrains him multiple times. Paul's like, yeah, we got to go. She's like, no, come back to my house and eat lunch. And they're like, no, we got to go. She's like, no, come back to my lunch. Come, come to my house. Come to my house. And so he comes to their house, and a church ends up starting there through Lydia, an assertive woman, a woman who didn't, who, who didn't take Paul's words when he said no. She's constrained him. So a church is born. You have um, JL, the tent post lady. Remember her? She rams a tent post to that enemy general's head. She's heralded as a hero, right? You have um, Rahab, who is the, uh, the harlot, the hooker, that invites the spies in from Israel and ends up in the genealogy of Jesus because she took, she asserted herself and said, no, you guys are legit. We all hear the stories. We all know what you do to everyone. So please don't do that to me. Here's how you get into the city. I'm out, right? <laughs> so, so she's heralded as a hero. Uh, you have the, the, I can't remember the name of the family, but you have the, the women that petitioned Moses when their, when their brothers died, when they're about to inherit the land. And they go to Moses and they say, hey, our patriarchs are dead, but that land is ours. So Moses goes to the Lord and says, hey, I got these ladies. They say the land is theirs. What should we do? The Lord says, give them the land. So Moses gives them the land, right? Assertive women, women that, that, that looked for what God had promised and they chased it. You have Mary Magdalene and, quote, the other Mary who went to, to, to put spices on Jesus' body. Right? Women that took it upon themselves to, to go and to honor their Lord. And these are the women where the Jesus meets them and says, hey, go back and tell your disciples that I've risen from the dead. Right? Women that took initiative to, to honor the Lord, and then they, they received a, a tremendous responsibility. You have Mark's mother. She's unnamed. We don't know her name. But it's Mark's mother. If you remember when Peter goes to prison, she has her own house, which is impressive. She has her own house. And when Peter gets out of prison, she goes, he goes to her house where they're having a prayer meeting. And she has a household. She has servants. She's a woman of means. Uh, many scholars believe, and it's an inference, but many scholars believe she's probably the one that owned the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would go often to pray. So here you have a woman of means, and she's supporting Jesus. And, and there's no, you, know, you, you never read, like, hey, you better give that to the men. You better leave the prayer meetings to the men. You don't ever read about that. You have, uh, there, there's many more examples. You have uh, Philip's five prophesying daughters. You have Anna the prophetess that, that waited in the temple after being uh, a widow. You have Priscilla and Aquila, virtually one of the only families, not just in the New Testament, but in ancient literature, like all of it, where you have the female's name first. They're always introduced as Priscilla and Aquila. And it's Priscilla and Aquila that take Apollos aside and show him the way of the gospel more excellently. 
Remember, Paulus is preaching. He's preaching the gospel, but he's only preaching the baptism of John. He doesn't know about everything else. And so he's preaching that Christ came, and, but not the full Monty of what that meant. And so it's Priscilla and Aquila that pull him aside, and, and it, it notes, the Bible notes, both of them. So Luke, by the Holy Spirit, and again, we want to be careful with inference, but Luke, by the Holy Spirit, is naming, which was radically different, that family with the woman first, okay? And, Pris- and, and Priscilla and then Aquila. So we have, and, and there's, there's more, but we won't go into it. Well, we will. Mary, the, the mother of James and John. This is a great one, right? She's the mother of James and John. It may have been misguided, we don't know, but she goes to Jesus and says, I just want to make sure that my son sit on your right hand and your left hand. And, and, and Jesus doesn't go, you know what, that's a patriarch's job. What's your deal? Go back to the kitchen, Right? Because we, we, this, that idea gets perpetrated all the time on the Bible. That that's how somehow the Bible looks at things. But no, Jesus says, oh, that's not mine to give. I don't decide that. That's my father decides that. So you have, here's this mom who's like, I'm taking care of my boys. I'm making sure that they're squared away in eternity. It's pretty solid. All right, seems pretty good. If you don't mind, let's turn over to Ephesians 5. Because we're laying a foundation here for biblical Christianity and interaction between men and women. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is kind of my go-to for all premarital, not for why you think, if you're familiar with it. In Ephesians chapter 5, we won't read the whole thing for time's sake, but he says here in verse 15, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the, opportunity of, uh, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And he goes on, he says, Don't be foolish, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So this is Paul in, the, in kind of the... Uh, the application side of, of Ephesians. Excuse me. I think we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. But so what Paul is doing is he's saying, look, Jesus has done this, this, and this for you. And if you've responded to Jesus and you received his eternal life, this is how you begin to walk in it. That's what he's saying. So the first thing he says is we should be very careful. Some of your Bibles might say you walk circumspectly. And that's the word there. The word is circumspect, which literally is to, to walk looking in every direction. That's the idea. To, to circumvent, to look around, and to consider everything around you. That's how wisdom walks. It doesn't just freak out and then tweet something. It stops and it thinks about, it looks into, and it considers what's happening. So Paul, writing to Christians, he says, this is how you walk. You walk wisely. You look around, you consider, you think. After that, you're not being uh, influenced by other things, namely, in this case, wine. The implication there isn't he's just throwing wine out there, like, make sure you don't get drunk with wine. Beer's fine, but not wine. He's just making the point. Don't be influenced by the intoxicants of this world. That's all he's saying. Because the world and its ideas can be very intoxicating. It can, it can, it can uh, promise empowering and end up with emptiness. It's a very tricky thing out there. So then he goes on and he says, after that, don't be, don't be influenced by wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And, and, and the Greek there is an active verb, be being filled, continually being filled with the Spirit. Always be available to and open to the Spirit doing more in your life. But then he finishes that, per, that part of it. And he's going to go into relationships, all relationships, husbands, wives, children, slaves, everything under the sun. And he says there in verse 21, in relationships, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's important that we understand that male and female relationships in the church, they're based on circumspect walking and understanding. They're based on being full of the Holy Spirit and considering what the Spirit is wanting to do. 
and they're based on love, and they're based on submission, mutual submission. How does that work in this context? Paul can't be saying, make sure that everybody obeys everybody, because we all have very weird ideas, don't we? They're not weird to us because we have them, and clearly we wouldn't have weird ideas, and so we think everybody should do them. And I mean, there's really no end to it. Uh, You know, I remember years ago, there was a a person that came into the church, and and it was during the worship, and someone was looking at their phone, evidently, and and, and they came back, and they said, oh, that person's looking at their phone. And I was like, oh, okay. And and they go, you need to tell them to stop. And I go, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's That's weird. But, you know, in their mind, looking at a phone during worship was disrespectful. And you might make an argument for that, right? But we have no idea why that person's looking at their phone. We have no idea what's going on. And really, is it really any of our business if they're disrespecting God or not? Probably not. There's been plenty of people over the years that come to church and sit and play Candy Crush. I don't know why they do it. I would just sit at home and do it. But whatever, it's fine. So we have ideas that may or may not be founded in reality or even wisdom, and we want to put them on everybody else. So Paul cannot be saying here this morning, we should all just obey everybody else at the church. That's not real. But what being subject to one another is, where it does become real, is that when someone says a weird idea, we don't have a freak out. We don't go, I can't believe you said that. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. We can just go, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. You think the moon's made out of cheese. Okay, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Have you tasted it? Did they land on cheese? What kind of cheese is it? Right? We can you know, move through things. And what are we doing? We're subjecting ourselves. Someone just said something that was really weird. And if they truly believe it, it's probably destructive as far as how they think the universe works, which is going to go on down the line, isn't it? But we can be subject to them and we, don't have, we, can, we can try to help them. Same if someone's rude to us. We can be subject to them. We don't have to rise up and say, you will not be rude to me. I will not be dominated by you. Let me tell you what's what. We can maybe instead ask a question. Why are you upset? What happened? Why do you think I'm an idiot? I mean, I'm not saying I'm not. I'm just saying, you know, how did I prove it? Right? So there's ways that we can move in and out where we're going to have everyday consideration and, di- and dialogue and all those things and interaction where we are subject to one another. So it's important to understand that as Christians in the body of Christ, that our MO, our modus operandi, if you will, is to love and to be subject. And it's from that position that all the other things come from. You know, in this case, it's wise to be subject to your husband. Husbands, make sure that you love your wives, literally to cherish them, and it's going to go on. And we'll come back to this later. But the point is that the Bible is never advocating for a systemic subjection of women to men. It does not advocate for that. All right? Now we look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. So if if we can look at and understand general interactions between men and women in the church... From a biblical point of view, and we can escape all the societal differences throughout all of time and place, we can see what is God's heart. And in different places, that gets acted out in different ways. And some are right and some are wrong. So in this case, in in, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul talking about us as new creations in Christ, as people that are walking with Jesus in the Spirit, he says this in verse 26. 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Now, clearly, he's not saying that once you get saved, you are gender fluid. He is not saying that there is no gender anymore after you get saved. That doesn't make any sense, does it? What he's saying is that as far as your relationship to one another and to Jesus in a corporate setting, there is no male-female. That that's not what God is focused on. That's not what God is looking at. That we are all new creations in Christ, and we all have the same mission to be with him, to love him, and to love others, right? Now, we'll talk more later because men and women are different, right? And there will be differences between how we do things and how we think because it's physiologically almost mandatory if you consider and look at how men and women's brains are built and how they work. So let's flip over to 1 Corinthians. We'll actually read the chapter we're talking about. But I wanted to lay out that foundation so that when we do read this, because there's some things in here that, that are definitely offensive to some of the modern uh, ways of thinking, but when we do read this, we can know at least what it's not saying. Does that make sense? And when, then we can talk about what it is saying. So in verse 11, or I'm sorry, in chapter 11, we're actually going to start in, in, 10, in chapter 10, verse 31, because this is what Paul is addressing. He's addressing liberties in worship, in, in church meetings. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Just tuck that away. That's really important. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the traditions just as I pass them down to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head uh, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head because he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority on her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of a woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now let's take a second and let's talk about translations, because your translation may be different from mine. 
For example, if I'm not mistaken, the ESV, well, let me back up from there, in fact. Now, when we read and it talks about the, 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 the head of man is Christ and the head of, of, of woman is a man, there's something that's really important about Koine Greek or Koine Greek, however you want to pronounce it. And that is that the, the, the Greek word for woman is the same Greek word for wife. And the way you interpret it is by what the sentence says. So for us, this is difficult, right? Because we don't live in Corinth. We don't know what the problems were. We have vague illusions uh, of what they probably were. We have some history that we'll look at, some extra biblical history, like the, the Babylonian Talmud and whatnot. But we don't ultimately know what was going on there. What we do know is radically dysfunctional, and something was happening when women were uncovering their head, and it was dishonoring their husband. Because we know that there's no systemic call for women to submit themselves to men just in general in the body, we know that there is an order that God gives for marriage. So we have to be careful that we don't take that marriage order, and we'll talk about that because it's, it's, it's not, we'll talk about it. <laughs> but it, when we're looking at you know, how these things work out and how they play out, it's important to understand that one translation translates it woman, and that's accurate to an extent. But when other translations translate, translate it wife, it's probably more accurate. Because, he's, because of what we've already looked at, we know Paul is not saying, when you go to church, ladies, make sure you all throw a doily on your head so that that way every man knows that you're subjective. That's not what it's saying. Okay? Have people made it said that? They have. And they were wrong. And it was bad. Okay? So nobody's advocating for past bad Bible teaching. But what we are talking about is the fact that if we insert and consider the context and say, well, it's probably talking about wives, well, that may irk us still. It's still there's a context to that, and, and, and we'll get to why and how that works out in a marriage. And so when Paul's writing to them, it's important to understand that he's writing and he's considering a very specific problem, and we're reading that very specific problem 1,900 years later, and we're trying to apply it for ourselves. So first and foremost, we'll back up here at verse uh, 2. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and holding to the traditions just as I pass them to you. So even though there's critics there in Corinth, and, and we talked about that last week where Paul addresses those critics, there's also, in, in general, a, a group or maybe the majority of people there that, that honor Paul, that consider him, yeah, you started this church and you know what's going on and we appreciate you and these type of things. And he says to them, he gives them a, an encouragement, he says, you guys have received the traditions that I have passed on to you. So we know that he's probably not talking about just human traditions. Jesus addressed that, right? One of the difficulties that the Pharisees were having is that they were passing the traditions of men as laws. And they were forcing people, and they had different ways that they would do that with gifts and whatnot. They were basically getting things for themselves by enforcing their traditions from history. And so Jesus comes along and he says, you're doing it wrong. This is wrong. You're taking traditions of men and you're turning them into a law and it's oppressing people. So he's most likely not talking about that. He seems to most likely instead be talking about these are like traditions. Like he's in the next half, he's going to go into how the Lord's Supper works. So it seems to be more that he's saying, look, the things that I gave you that God gave me. In fact, that's how he begins uh, that section for, in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. So these traditions are things that he got from Jesus, and he's now giving to the church. Does that make sense? So he praises them to that. But then he gives us a, a spiritual reality. And that's, I think, what can make this, 
this passage difficult because there's a spiritual reality in verse 3 where he says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is, is the man and the head of Christ is God. So that's a spiritual true. But if we come down to the bottom of this section uh, in verse 15, or verse 14, it says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For long hair is given to her as a cover. Verse 16, if anyone wants to... Oh, I read the wrong verse again. How do I do that? Oh, where he sa- oh, he says, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Y- yes. Right? Have any of the women here felt shame when you prayed with your head uncovered? Probably not, right? So on the one hand, in the beginning of the passage, we have a spiritual true. But at the end of the passage, as we'll go into, we have a, it was a, a cultural true. Let's talk about it right now. So I got a list, and I wrote down this list, of basically ancient literature that points to the fact that in both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, Greek-Roman culture, women covered their head. It's, it's noted in third, uh, the third um, Maccabean book. It's in the Mishnah. It's in the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, it's in, uh, there's a guy named um, uh, Plutarch, uh, a philosopher. He talks about it. Uh, the one, there's a novel called The Golden Ass, and it just means donkey, you weirdos. It's the golden donkey, <laughs> right? It is the one novel... That served in, in, in completeness survived out of first century Rome. So there's a guy who wrote a novel called The Golden Donkey, because we're in church, and uh, he, he basically, in that novel, it notes that women, just as, as it describes women, that it was commonplace they wore, they wore head covering. We know that it was typically, like, if you had, like, an outer garment, then the outer garment would also, like, a cloak or something like that would come up over the head. Or they would wear a scarf. Veils were not normal. That, veils came much later, the hijab or something like that. that. That was much later. But it was normal for that, okay? So in their culture, when Paul says, don't you, isn't it, you acknowledge that it, it would be shameful or it's, it's, it seems unright for a woman to pray with her hair covered. We all go, I don't see that at all, right? Because that's not in our culture. But in their culture, in first century Rome, that was absolutely how it went. And this is going to play more into why Paul is correcting them. But as we get back up there into this true, he says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of, of, of Christ is God. And I'd like to work backwards from that. Because what's happened is this idea of being subject, it gets abused into the idea of just an absolute slavery. And that's not, what's called, that's not what people are called to. So if we work backwards, maybe it can help us to consider this, that God, the Father, is the head of Christ, okay? So Jesus, on multiple occasions, said that he is equal with God, right? John 10, he says that. He says, I and the Father are one. Other times, he, he, he says, before Abraham was, I am, making a statement that he's the eternal God. So over and over and over again, you see Christ saying, I am God, right? But then he says things like, in in John 14, the Father is greater than I. He says things like, everything I see the Father do, that's what I do. He says things like, everything the Father's will is, what he says, that's what I do. 
And if you're a lady, you're going, well, that must have worked out really great because God was his father and not my weird husband, right? It's easy to look at that and to say, hey, yeah, of course he did that. He would have always, they would have just been unity on everything because it's God. I mean, clearly he'd be in unity. Remember, Jesus comes to the garden and he says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But yet not my will, thy will be done. So even in that relationship, somehow God, when he took on, the Bible says he took on the likeness of sinful flesh. So you have God come into the form of a man and Jesus, the eternal, the eternal Christ, the eternal Messiah, takes on flesh and lives a life that's based on living by the power of the Holy Spirit and receiving from his Father. That's how he lived. So the Bible says just as Christ had a head and it was God, he yielded and considered God, then the Bible says that for a married person, not women generically, this is important, that as a married person that there's an order that takes place in a marriage. And that order is based on as a man, as a human, that you lead and love your wife. And a wife is called to, to look to her husband for that leadership. Now, this does not mean that you can't have, an, and I say aggressive, but I don't mean that in a negative way or assertive. I'm just saying a person who is more willing to speak up. Right? That's all we're saying. So you can't and you should not label assertive women or women that are, that are moving forward in their faith independently as wrong. And likewise, if you have a passive man, it's wrong because those things are going to work out in a certain way. And we have to acknowledge that. Not every marriage will be the same. You, you're going to have Priscilla and Aquilas. And, and then you're going to have like the Peters who were just kind of like, charging in there. And he, he talks about how he, he led his wife and she went with him. And history tells us they were crucified together. And Peter's last words, history says, tradition says, were be strong woman as, as he's crucified upside down next to his crucified wife. So you have, you, you're going to have different expressions in a marriage, but they're still going to, to need to uh, contain these ideals. If we were to go back to Ephesians 5, and this is the part I think it's really important. After Paul talks about that wives are to be subject to their husbands, they're to listen to them, consider them, then it's, it goes on and it says that husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies, right? That a husband, and it's not agape, it's not phileo, it's not eros, it's not, none of those words. It's a word that literally translates to kiss or, 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 or metaphorically to, to cherish. So it's, it's called wives to be subject, but it calls husbands to cherish their wives. Then after he goes through all that in verse 33, it makes this commentary. Paul finishes the whole portion there in, in, in Ephesians 5, and he says, So a husband must, and the emphatic is there in the Greek, a husband must see to it that he cherishes his wife as much or more as he cherishes his own body. Okay, And then it says, And a wife must see to it that she respects her husband. It's two different words. A man has to cherish his wife. And, they, and there's crossover there, obviously, because cherishing will include respect, and respect will include cherishing. But there's different emphasis. Because here's, here, it's how men and women work. You know, there, there is an incredible amount of research. And it's weird because it doesn't get noted very often in the media. And I'm not trying to make a wisecrack. It just doesn't. There are literally thousands of studies, and they get more numerous the more technology we get, that show how different a man is from a woman. Not just because of sexual organs, but our actual brains are different. Even our eyeballs are different. 
You know, a man has a thicker, they have a thicker retina. Both retinas are thicker than women's. And they have a different type of cell, M cells. And, and, and a man, hands down, generally speaking, across the board, can observe movement way better than a woman can. A woman has a thinner retina, and she has more as a different cell. They're P cells in her eyes. And she is able to perceive color and detail significantly better than a man can. Isn't that interesting? Does that answer a lot of questions for you guys? <laughs> right? Just that, just that little piece of physiological evidence. Because when your dude is sitting on the couch, and you're like, I want to arrange it this way. And he goes, nah. Do I have to do that? <laughs> is this where I get off the couch? Just tell me the part where I get off the couch, and then we'll do what you want to do. Right? That's how it works in my house. I don't know how it works in, in your house. Women, you know, a lot of the communication problems, it's been, it's, there's a tons of studies, some are out of Denmark, men are significantly better at blocking out white noise than women are. Any repetitive sound. Yeah. <laughs> it's physiological. There's a ton of weird stuff. Men have very little neural connection between the vocal sections of their brain and the emotional centers of their brain. So if you're wondering why your dude's not constantly telling you about his feelings, it's because he can't. Men traditionally have like one person that they'll communicate their feelings with, and it's usually very difficult. Now, we're talking generally, okay? There are obviously outliers, and they're sensitive men, and, and we're not here to, to say that you should or shouldn't be or anything like that. We're, we're, not, we're talking about generally how human beings physiologically work. So when we start looking at the scripture and God says something like, you better cherish your woman, your wife, you see the wisdom in it, right? Because women, for example, in, in sexual centers of their brain and emotional centers have 50% more neural connection than men do in general. So women have to be emotionally safe and, and, and comfortable to be aroused sexually, traditionally, right? Men have almost none. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be crass. It's just the truth. In fact, men have more, more connection to sexual areas in their brain that cause arousal to, to, um, uh, to like the amygdala and places where, that deal with stress and anger more than they do with their emotional centers. So a, a, a lot of men will actually become more aroused or be more open to being aroused the more stressed out they get because sex becomes a release for them. Does that answer any questions for anybody about what marriage is like? Right? So it's not just to spout physiological facts, but there's a million more. You know, women, and, and, uh, women have about one week a month that they're not being doused with either estrogen or uh, what is it, progestin, or progesterone, I mean, all these different, and oxytocin, right? So those things are constantly being bombarded on women's brains. And they, and they cause, it's interesting, because like during the cycle, there's, there's about 25% more neural connection, I think it's between the amygdala and the hypothalamus, I can't remember, that is, that is created by estrogen, and that is stripped away, all that neural connection is then stripped away uh, after that, that, that event takes place. So maybe that helps you to understand why one day you can feel amazing and the next day you don't, right? A lot of it is physiological. So when we look and God says, hey, I created human beings and I created men 
And I looked at men, and I said, it's not good for them to be alone. That's what God did. And so he created women. And so men and women are designed to be together. The difficulty is, is that we're fallen. And, 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 and especially in a society like today, it's probably always been, but in a society that wants to solve everything with a tweet or with some pithy sentence to try to solve these huge, difficult problems, we do that to one another. And so Paul, is, there's this issue that's occurring in Corinth. You go, wow, this is a giant explanation. It really is. Because Paul's addressing something that's going on in Corinth. And what's happening is women are feeling liberated by the gospel. So what we know from history, like we already talked about with the, the Babylonian Talmud and all those fancy books, what we know from history is that specifically in other places too, but specifically in Corinth, temple prostitutes did not wear scarves on their head. They didn't wear head coverings. So what you had was, as a societal norm, you had women wearing head coverings. And then they're getting saved, and they have liberty. They're not under the law anymore. And so they're coming to this church, and they're taking their head coverings off. And so what's happening is publicly, they're dishonoring their head, their husbands. And by dishonoring their husbands, they're dishonoring Christ. So Paul is writing back, and he's not writing back to them to say, you guys need to get back in the kitchens, or some other pompous, terrible thing. He's writing them back to say, look, our entire context of curbing liberty, right? 8, 9, 10, all the way through chapter 14. 11 through, through 14 just deal with public worship type stuff. So he's saying in the public worship, you are doing Christ's kingdom harm because you're causing your husband to look like he's walking around with a temple harlot. So please put your head covering back on. That's what he's saying. And that's all that he's saying. But he also gives that spiritual true that God created human beings and he created a certain order. So what about that order? What does it mean then? Verse, when he says there, um, and I'm not going to talk too much about the cutting of the head. Uh, don't cut your heads. No, the cutting of the, the shaving of the head. Uh, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. He's just saying societally, if you were to walk around with a shaved head, that, there was, that that was considered shameful. And we're running out of time, so you're more than welcome to look up the customs. If you like history, it's, it's very interesting. If you don't, then it's just a waste of time. But he says there, in verse 7, he says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of glory of God. The word glory there is the same as it always is. It's doxa. And it's, so God creates man as an image bearer. Uh, human, males. And, and in the beginning, male alone as an image bearer of himself, right? But it says that woman is the, the glory of man, women being the doxa. So it's men, spiritually speaking, in a gathering are an allegorical representation of headship, of being of leadership. Whereas women are a spiritual representation and they are the glory of the doxa. They, they basically point to the, they're, the good, they're the good side of men. <laughs> basically is the idea. They're the doxa, the good opinion, the good side of the human race. That's what he's saying. So because women are, if you want to label it the fair sex, whatever you want to say, he says that, there, that there's a need for them to cover their head. Verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You go, I knew it. See, the Bible is a patriarchy trying to oppress us. He said that women were created for men. He did. Because it wasn't good for man to be alone. 
So the issue, the issue isn't like women, is, women are like this afterthought. God doesn't have afterthoughts. It's not that women are second class and, and you know, we needed someone to clean up our messes or anything like that. I know men treat women like that, and it's wrong. But the idea is that women were created exactly and perfectly to complement and be with men. But we have to work through our own spiritual stuff on each side for that to clearly show who God is and how good he is. So he's not making weird assertions about that, that women are less than or something like that. He's saying that because of the way people were created, this is the way that works best. Are there going to be outliers? Sure there will be outliers. We're not saying there won't be outliers. Some of those outliers are created because how people are treated when they grew up. If you're a female and you get treated horribly growing up and you get put down and, and you get assaulted or whatever it might be, you will grow up in a certain way and you will view men in a certain way. And I'm not sure which is worse. Typically, you'll either view men as demons and you'll stay away from them or you'll deal, you, you, you won't make that association and instead you'll think it's okay to be treated a certain way. Right? That's why it's so important to not be a jerk dad or a jerk husband. Because if you raise daughters that, or sons, but if you raise children that observe you treating your wife poorly, then your, your daughters will either A, resist men or resist that kind of relationship, or they will, be, uh, they will think it's okay to be treated that way. And if you're raising sons and you treat your wife poorly, they will be raised up to think that that's how you treat a wife. And they will treat their women poorly. And guess what happens to their children when they treat their women poorly? The same thing. So we have to be careful that we're not advocating for some sort of weird biblical sheikdom and saying that this is right, because the Bible isn't. We're just saying that because of the way men and women work, like, if you disrespect a man, all you wives out there, or anybody who's ever seen a man and disrespected him, what happens? If you, if you disrespect a type B man, meaning a more reserved person, a, a man who is uh, someone who is more passive, he will typically retract, right? He's not going to argue with you. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's going to go to his happy place in his mind, right? And he's going to use that ability to shut out white noise, and he's not going to listen to you. And you're going to go, why does my husband listen to me? Because you disrespected him. If you have a, a, a type A personality husband and you disrespect him, he's going to become agitated. And if you continue to disrespect him, it's going to lead to anger. I'm not saying violence, but it's going to lead to anger. Because he's not going to be treated that way. And it's not going to happen. If you have a passive wife and you don't cherish her, she may go on to continue to be a blessing to you, but you're not going to win her and she's going to be lonely. And she's not going to have the kind of relationship that God wants for you guys to have. If you have a, 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 a type A personality wife and you don't cherish her, then she's probably going to be more vocal about it. And she's going to be more vocal to her friends. She's going to be more vocal to those around her. She's going to be more vocal to you because you're not treating her the way she should be treated. You're not cherishing her the way she should be cherished. So as we see where God says, hey, look, there's a leadership role and it's just an opportunity for these things to work the way they're supposed to work. He's not advocating for an oppressive patriarchy. He's advocating to say, I made you. I took woman from man. And maybe there's a, a large um, significance to that. And they were set to go forth and walk around in a garden together. 
and to love God together. So now we fast forward, you know, 4,000 years from that point, and there's an issue in, in Corinth. And so he says, please, because of what's happening in Corinth, don't disrespect your husband. Please put your, your, your cloth back on. Don't walk in the liberty that you have because it's stumbling other people. That's what he's saying. Because he goes on there in verse 11, he says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We need each other. There's no independence here. There's, nobody's on their own. Nobody's better. Nobody, we're all trying to make it together. He says, For as a woman came from man, so also the man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So just like woman was taken out of man in, in, in the origin story, after that, every man comes from a woman. No one is superior. No one is better. Nobody has priority. Nobody gets privilege. We're all in it together to walk with Jesus. And then this last part, we read it already, but he says, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, we can say yes, right? I might, that might scare us, because well, the Bible is asking a rhetorical question, the answer is no. To Corinth in 56 AD. There's probably a lot of things that have changed from then till now, right? A lot, do you guys use electricity on Saturdays? Because the Jews didn't, well, never then, right? But it's a bad example. Do you kindle a fire on a Saturday? Because the Jews didn't. There's lots of things have changed. Societally, things have changed. And so when we come here and we go, no, you don't wear head coverings. Head coverings were actually, uh, what, until the, uh, probably the 50s, 60s, a lot of churches had head coverings, right? And it was just based on a, a profound misunderstanding of what's being said here. Because it does get a little weird, because it says there, uh, verse, I should back up and read this, because he says there, uh, verse 10, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority overhead because of the angels. You're like, why, wow, angels can't see hair? Why did it, what's the token of authority? It's, 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 it's the idea that the head covering was a token that, that, they're, that, that ladies are saying, I'm submitting to my husband. So why is it that angels care? We have multiple times in the scriptures. Uh, see, I think I wrote them down. I had to write a lot of stuff down. There's a lot of references here. Yeah, in Ephesians chapter 3 and in 1 Peter 1, angels look in on church meetings and they observe what's happening in the church to learn about God's plan of redemption. That's what 1 Peter says and it's what Ephesians says. So angels learn what God's wanting to do while watching church meetings. So if you have fancy hair, they just can't see anything. <laughs> no. The idea is that if people are rebelling, if a man is rebelling against his head, Christ, if a wife is rebelling or disrespecting her head, her husband, then what the, 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 the model and the, the learning center, what do you want to call it, is broken. And God's glory isn't manifested the way it could be. And his kingdom is hindered. That's all he's saying. So nobody gets to treat anybody bad. Nobody's to be, to be somebody else's servant. That's none of that. It's that the way men and women work, generally speaking, God has created an order that when we walk in it, it glorifies him, it causes contentment. Uh, I, there's a million more physiological differences that are, are fascinating we could talk about of why that, that stays congruent. But the, but the reality is that that's what he's called. That's all he's saying. He's saying, hey, ladies, would you guys be willing to lay down this right that you have so that people from outside the church can come and not be scandalized? That's all he's saying. Now, this is the, the last, we'll stop here. And this, again, this is why it makes it difficult. 
He says in verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, so contentious, you know, angry, upset, I don't like that. You know, if anybody wants to be contentious, that doesn't really happen at church, I don't think. But if somebody wants to be that way, Paul throws out there, he says, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. If you have an ESV, it says, we don't practice this in any other church. So which is it? Nobody knows. No one knows. Is he saying that they do that in every church, or is he saying that they only do it in Corinth? And this might kind of scare us a little bit. Nobody knows what's being said there. You're talking about people that devote their lives to translating Koine Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all that, and they don't know from the sentence structure what it really is. So if he's saying that they have that tradition in every church, that's fine. We're not afraid of that, right? Because we don't live in 56 A.D., we don't have those same restraints, right? If you walk down the street with your head uncovered, people don't go, ooh, that's a temple prostitute, right? They go, they don't even think about it. They say, there's a woman there. In fact, if you walk down the street with your head covered, they probably go, oh, that must be somebody of a different religion, right? So we have a different culture. And if he is saying that they have no other uh, practice in, in the churches, well, then that's, that supports the same idea where he's just saying, hey, Corinth, don't do that. But if you've got a problem with it, it's cool. We don't, you know, whatever. We don't do that in all the churches. So either way, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to be uh, concerned about it. We can just know that every single one of us, men and women alike, we have a calling, and our calling is to make sure that we elevate and glorify God, right? That's what we started with in chapter 9. Do all that you do for the glory, the doxa, the good opinion of God, that everything we do, that we would do it so that people look at us and they, when they see us, they say, well, God is good. God is impressive. And the thing is, re- rebellion and attitude will never give that doxa. It'll never give that glory to God. It'll just go, oh, another person who's chapped at life just like me. How can God be powerful if that's how they act? I might as well not even be part of that. So that's the responsibility we bear. So hopefully this was encouraging to you uh, that, you know what, we can take a look at this and we may not be masters of it and we probably won't until Jesus comes come back or maybe you'll be a master of it someday. I probably won't. But that we can look at it and we can go, God is not calling for a, a, a systemic subjugation of women. He never has. He never will. He's calling for order in his house. And he's calling for every exercise from every man and every woman to come from a place of love for Christ and for one another. And that we'd be willing on every hand to lay down our rights and our offenses to make sure that everybody and anybody has a great opportunity to know Jesus and how great he is. That's all that he's saying. So if you have any questions about that, uh, we can talk afterwards. I'm glad to to talk about it um, because God has great things for us and we don't want to mess with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your loving kindness and the opportunity to consider these texts of old that have such good lessons for us. I pray, Lord, that this week we be those filled with your Holy Spirit and looking for opportunity in one another and in the unsaved to share your good news. Lord, thank you for being so kind to us. We appreciate it. Pray for your presence in our life this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.